You're listening to a resource from Jamboree Anglican Church. Let me lead us in prayer. We pray, our Heavenly Father, now that as you speak to us in your word, that we would listen by your spirit, that we particularly get our heads around what it means for Jesus to be the one who is ruling everything in eternity and in, in, uh, in our world here today. And we pray, Father, this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll see up on the screen that there's a, uh, a URL, docs.jamburuanglican.com. If you would like a copy of this document that I'm holding here, this is the paper version. You can get yourself a soft copy online. Uh, but the good news is all of the things that you would want to have are also on the screen behind me. So uh, you won't miss out if you don't have that in front of you. So... Right, just getting my papers in order here this morning. We're in business. Well, most days I stop and have a listen to an important update from our leaders. Uh, the Prime Minister and our Chief Medical Officer will often bring us updates about just how the spread of COVID-19 is going and the impact on our economy and on our lifestyle. We hear about how many people have been tested, how many people have been diagnosed, and how many have deceased. They're sobering messages in so many ways. And we're also told how it is that we can keep isolating from each other to stop the spread and to flatten the curve. Now, often the message is really positive. The Prime Minister will stand up and say, you're doing really, really well, keep going. Uh, sometimes he needs to tell us off, like has happened even yesterday, that as soon as we can go to the beach, people flood in great number and it's kind of like a face slap. What are you doing? And then the police will come in and restrict things further. And other days we hear information that is more general about how it is that things are tracking, what we can do to keep staying safe and how it is that we see this whole thing unfolding. I think it's fair to say that uh, Scott Morrison has done a great job in all of this and uh, all of those who are working with him, the, the Territory and State Leaders and the various other officers, are just doing a great job for us and we're so thankful to God for them and we keep praying for them. We are following our leaders because we trust them and we know that their advice is important for us and they want us to get through this safely. 2,000 years ago, God's people were also going through a serious crisis. A little bit different, though. Their enemy was not a virus, but was a vile dictator. Instead of a coronavirus, it was a Caesar who was threatening them, a persecuting emperor who wanted to kill Christians for sport. And at this time, the followers of Christ were being attacked. And in their time of pain and suffering, Jesus was with them. He stood with them. He cared for them and he gave them the words that they needed to hear. And these special words are what we're looking at today in the Bible. Last week we began our nine-week series through the book of Revelation. I love the book of Revelation and I'm really thrilled that we can be looking at it together last week, this week and seven more weeks after this. Uh, it's, it's an exciting book. It's the last book of the Bible. It's a controversial book because lots of people have a lot of things to say about it. And I think it's a key, key message for us right at this moment as our whole world is going through this, this global crisis. It's an unusual book in so many ways because it uses weird imagery to communicate its message. It uses pictures, sort of word pictures, to describe what is almost indescribable. And that is how it is that Jesus is ruling this whole universe and heaven above. 
and it uses animals and colors and numbers to send this message of comfort to God's people in their time of acute suffering. Last week, we heard that Jesus stood amongst all of his churches. He stood there and he had in his hand the seven stars, which are the leaders of the church, and he stood amongst seven lampstands, which represented the churches. They are seven real places. This is the map we looked at last week. And you can see here, Patmos is the place where John was writing this from. And then he writes it to these seven churches, physical places, Places on the map in modern, what is modern-day Turkey. So we get them there. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. The seven churches of Revelation, they are the ones to whom he is writing through the Apostle John, Jesus is. And we will hear these, six, these seven letters today. And like all the letters of the New Testament, as the letters are written in one particular context at a particular time... They have a message at that moment in history. But they also have a message to us in our moment in history once we realise what was first being said back then. And we'll see in this that the message right here is timeless and it's very timely for us. All of these letters had a similar pattern. And this is really useful as we try and analyse them as we we will this morning. Because when you see a slight change to the pattern, you'll see an emphasis. If there's a particular thing that's missing from one of the seven letters, it almost makes it jump out as a different rhythm, which will give further emphasis to it. And in all of this, we're seeing a kind of writing known as apocalyptic writing. I talked a little bit about it last week, but the thing is it uses unusual and cryptic images to convey meaning. And so we will see some coded stuff today, and that will help us because we will then try and crack that code, which I don't think is too hard to do. And in doing so, we'll understand what God was saying through through, um, John in the first century and therefore what he's saying through his scriptures to us today. Well, it kicks off in chapter 2, verse 1, saying, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. So it starts off with Jesus talking to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The angel, in this sense, is actually the messenger of the church. Uh, He's talking to the heavenly representative who is then communicating this message to the earthly church. Uh, What this is really important for us is to realize that as we even here are separated physically from each other, we are part of God's heavenly church. We are part of the body of Christ if we are members of him and if we trust in Jesus. And that means that even though we are physically disconnected, even though there are only four people in this physical building right now, with you who are watching through Facebook Live or who through listening through the telephone hookup, we know that you are connected with us and we are connected with the other churches and we are connected through Christ. And it is a great comfort because it is a reminder again that Jesus is here and he's in control. Sometimes it's easy to feel out of control through this whole coronavirus crisis. But Jesus remains in control. Keep that to heart, friends. Well, next he says in the second and third verses something about the church that's positive. He says to them, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without 
quitting. Uh, He knows that they've not given up. And he praises them in particular for not tolerating wicked people. Uh, We in our church here are inclusive. We want you to come, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you believe, we want to welcome you here amongst us. But if somebody stands up and says something to represent Jesus that is clearly wrong, they need to stop. And we need to not tolerate them because that is a dangerous thing to claim to speak on behalf of the one who rules the universe and to speak incorrectly. Jesus says very clearly that we must, as a church, not tolerate false leaders. This is something we must keep doing. And they have done that, and they have endured hardships in Jesus' name. And Jesus, having praised them for something good, now tells them off for something bad. He says, But I have this complaint against you, verse 4. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place amongst the churches. This is a very big warning. He is saying, Jesus is saying to this church, you have lost your way and if you do not come back, then you will miss out. He says that they must turn back to Jesus. You know, I was once speaking to a person who'd gone through a really hard patch as a Christian and they'd wandered away from following Jesus. They hadn't been to church for a long time and they, deep in their hearts, still thought that they were a follower of Jesus but just weren't sure if Jesus would keep having them as their as, as, as his leader. The key is in all of this that Jesus' sheep hear his voice. And so if that is you and you have wandered away from Jesus and you want to come back, just come back. It's that simple. Jesus is there and he says, if you turn back, he will bring you back. But the warning is also the case that if you do not turn back to Jesus, then he will remove you from his church. Well, just as the church at Ephesus might be feeling a bit shaken by Jesus' words, he then gives them some encouragement in verse 6. He says to them, but this is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. They might have lost Jesus as their first love, but they do share Jesus' hate of those who practice something that is against Jesus. These Nicolaitans sound like trouble. Well, they were, because they were saying that you could mix following Jesus with also going to the temple and worshipping Artemis, the goddess. Now, how do you think Jesus is going to cope with someone saying, oh, you can have a bit of Jesus and a bit of Artemis? No, that is never going to end up well. And so it was that they were right to reject the message of the Nicolaitans. And so with this first of the seven mini letters, Jesus encourages them by saying, verse 7, that anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Just like Jesus said as he walked on earth, when he said, everyone who has ears to hear, let them listen. That's exactly what he says right here. And he ends with these words of encouragement that remind us all the way back to, the, to the, what, this, this message here of the tree of life. And he says essentially that those who genuinely know Jesus will obey him. 
And when they do, in the power of the Spirit, they will be victorious in Jesus and will receive a reward. And so he ends this little mini letter with a message of hope. That's kind of the pattern we see through all of here. And so we turn now to our next church, the church at Smyrna, verse 8. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Uh, Jesus begins with words of great comfort. He's the one who is the eternal boss of all times, who has also conquered death. And so whatever happens here on earth is only just a blink in time. And that is a great comfort. Because if you fear death, if you're concerned about your future, you need not fear anymore if you trust in Jesus. These are the words of comfort that we receive for us right here, right now, right here in your lounge room. And he comforts them in verses 9 and 10 by saying that I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Did you notice what was missing in this letter as it started? There was no word of rebuke. He didn't kick off by saying, now here's something that's wrong, before he then came in with something positive. He says here in verses 9 through to 10 that basically he feels their pain. This is a great comfort that when we come to Jesus and say, I'm hurting, I'm scared, I'm feeling alone, that Jesus can say, I am with you. I know what it's like to walk on this earth. I know what it's like to be persecuted for believing the truth. This is exactly what is happening here. These people here are physically poor, but they have their true riches in heaven. And Jesus knows about these certain Jews who say they are Jews, but really they are not Jews. A true Jew should recognize Jesus as the king of the Jews. But these ones here are basically opposing the followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, don't fear the suffering that's about to happen. He says, the devil will put them in prison. But Jesus is the boss of the devil. And the devil will only act in such a way that is within the confines of the will of God. Jesus knows, in particular, he says that the persecution will only happen for 10 days. What's he talking about with 10 days? Well, it's another one of those times in the book of Revelation where we need to interpret the numbers properly. You see, in one sense, the number 10 is 10 24-hour days, really. 10, 1, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so on. But in the book of Revelation, the number 10 stands for a set amount of time that's fairly short. In a little bit of time, we're going to see the number 1,000 used, which is also a set amount of time that is very long. So 10 is a set amount of time that's short. 1,000 is a set amount of time that is very long. So what he's saying here is that the persecution is brief but painful, which is really good. But maybe there's an extra level of meaning here. I mentioned last week that the book of Daniel in the Old Testament is really important to have in front of us as we're going through the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Daniel, there's all this other apocalyptic stuff. There's a lot of imagery that's quite similar and is picked up within the book of Revelation. Right at the start of Daniel, 
Daniel is there with his three mates and he's been hurled, in, uh, been dragged into the king's table and he's told with them that they need to eat his food. These people who are the Jews from Jerusalem are brought across to Babylon. And they say, we will not eat your food. Please send us vegetables. And they choose not to eat the food and, and they do that and they are tested for how many days? Ten. So I wonder whether or not that just like Daniel and his friends going through that real hard time, that God's people will not only survive, but they will thrive. And so when we see the number 10 there, it's kind of a bit of a, ah, do you get it? And so they do. With all of this, we're reminded that Jesus is king of all. Don't miss that out. And in the last verse of this second letter, Jesus gives a word of general encouragement. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Jesus says that if we are victorious with him, then the second death, which is hell, will not be something that Christians will face. We will escape the second death and will be raised with Christ. Uh, It's a little bit like how Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, when he said, Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. But I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he is the one to fear. Now we move to the third letter the letter to the church at Pergamon, verses 12 and 13. He says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamon. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Well, what he is saying here is that even though Satan has his throne in their city, ruling through the evil ruler that is there, they have not given in to him. Jesus knows where they are. He knows what they're going through. And he's noticed that they have remained faithful, even in this time of trial. But even so, they need to change. He says in verse 14, But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, there's a guy called Balaam, and he led God's people to worship idols and to go towards immorality. And it seems that that's exactly what this church is guilty of doing here today. What they've done, basically, is they've blended into the world too much. And Jesus says, if you keep doing that, then I will do to you what I did to Balaam. I'll strike you down with a sword, the sword of his mouth, the word of judgment. See, this church here was going under a great deal of persecution. It was really almost too hot to handle, but they had not given up. 
but what they had started to do was to blend into the world. Now, I don't think that that's what we've done here in our church in Jamboree. There is something that is different between us and the world. And there are some views and opinions of life that we will have that will clash with the world. And that's because we believe what Jesus believes and it's going to cause conflict there. But there's always the temptation for us to be more like our world, whether it's in our family, whether it's amongst our friends, whether it's with those that we work or those we go to school with, whether those we serve in community organisations and other things. We, we want to be connected well and sometimes we blend very well. And if we're not careful, we will become just like the world and Jesus will judge us for that. But we have hope. Verse 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. It really sounds like sort of Cold War code, doesn't it? (laughs) But it's a code that those who were reading this would have understood. And that is, there's a promise that God will give us victory and provisions. It's a wonderful word of comfort here. He says that you will have on your stone a new name. And you know, what is that name? It may well be the name of Jesus. And so that when God says, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, have a look at this stone. It's got Jesus' name on it. And he says, victory. What a great comfort that is. We now go to the fourth church in Thyatira, verses 18 and 19. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Now, this is a great word of comfort, isn't it? He notices how they are growing. He has seen how it is that they have changed. And it is lovely when we notice growth in people. Just this last week, Mandy found on her phone a video of our boys from about six or seven years ago playing musical instruments. They were tiny. They've grown up so much. We don't so much notice it week after week, the growth. It's so slow and sudden. But you notice it when you see it over the time. With Jesus, he sees how we grow. He sees those little challenges that we have, those temptations which we say no to. And he rejoices with us when that happens. But he also lovingly rebukes us. And so verses 20 to 23, we read that, But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. And therefore I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Jesus tells them to not tolerate a particular woman who has this code name Jezebel. 
Uh, This woman has misled God's people into following the beliefs and practices of this world. And this is a pretty serious word that he he has to them. She is identified in some sort of way as a prophet who appears to have leadership over God's people. Uh, We may not know who it is, but when they were reading this letter, they would have said, oh, we know exactly who you're talking about, and we are now hearing your message of rebuke. And because they know that if they do not do that, then they will suffer the kind of plagues that were down upon Egypt in that time just before the Exodus. And they will know that just punishment has been received upon her and it's come from Jesus. It's a fresh reminder that Jesus is judge over all. You know, I think it is way too simplistic for us to see disasters as being direct punishment from God, especially when we don't have a precise, reliable word from God about it in the Bible. And so when a disaster falls upon a particular nation in a particular time, we might try and join the dots and say, well, it could be because of their attitude to this thing or to that thing or their behavior in this area. But when there was a similar time like that, when Jesus walked around, he said, in this disaster, all I can tell you is you need to repent. However, what we have here is a specific situation with a specific sin from a specific person in a specific time. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring a specific judgment upon you at that time. And I think in that time, we can see that they can interpret the judgment in that particular way. But Jesus give hope to those who have chosen to reject Jezebel's false teaching. Verse 24 and 25, he says, But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, or deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. You see, Jesus is saying to them at that time that if you stay away from her teaching, you'll be free from the suffering that will come from this act of judgment. Don't know what that act of judgment was. Was it something just like our coronavirus? We don't know. But if they stay away from her teaching, they will be free from that suffering. And we all get this universal encouragement, verse 26 to 29. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Those who remain faithful to Jesus in the face of all this false teaching, will be victorious. And they will reign with Jesus over all the earth and we will receive the morning star. That beautiful picture of the rule of Jesus over the earth. I wonder when you get up in the morning and you see Venus on the horizon, you say, yeah, that's a reminder of Jesus. So now four churches down and now three to go. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. We read, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. He basically says that they are like a, a piece of wood where it has a good veneer, 
but underneath the surface is rotten to the core. And he says, because of this, they must repent about being two-faced because Jesus is coming back soon. Verse 3, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Jesus is going to return just like the imagery there of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He will return like a thief. He's going to come at an unexpected time. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know whether these particular things that are happening in the history right now are pointing to the fact that he's only days away. He may be another century or 10 centuries away. We do not know. But we do know that he's coming soon. We'll hear that again in a moment. But there's still hope in all of this, verses 4 to 6 of chapter 3. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. You know, some of them have not soiled their clothes, which means they've not been stained by the world's influences. They're still clothed in white, just like the elders around the throne that we will see in the coming chapters in this wonderful picture of heaven. I really hope you can join us next week when we look at those chapters. But that's what they should be like, clothed in white. And it's a word of encouragement that if we are victorious over these challenges in Jesus' power then we will have certainty for eternity and we'll be acknowledged forever by Jesus. That's what it means to have our name written in the book of life. There is no name, there's no book better that you would want to have your name written on than the book of life. Well, now we turn to the church in Philadelphia. We're speeding up. See in verse 7 to 9, it says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. See, Jesus reminds them that he has the power of the Messiah, the King, the key of David. And that is a great... We know that Jesus is the Messiah and he's saying, I am the one who has the power over death. And he reminds them that our enemies will soon be defeated. Almost reminiscent of Philippians chapter 2, where every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, many of whom will be saying that with clenched teeth. And then he reminds them that he's returning very soon. Verse 10 and 11. He says, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. He gives this closing word of great comfort to this church. If they, if we 
are victorious with Jesus, then we will be a pillar in the heavenly temple, a permanent fixture in the place where God lives. And verses 12, 13 go to show this, that all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. It's interesting, isn't it? And they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. These are great words of encouragement in uncertain times. And it is a great, great time to be listening to these seven messages to these seven churches, don't you think? Now we come to the final one, the church in Laodicea. Verse 14 says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. This is the final of these seven letters. And he reminds them again that Jesus is the truth. He's the Amen, the faithful witness. And because Jesus is the one who rules everything, he truly knows what they are like. And because of that, he declares to them in verses 15 and 16, he says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, in this place in Laodicea, they had springs of water. The springs of water weren't, weren't cold enough to enjoy drinking, and they weren't really hot enough to be able to soothe your aching muscles. Instead, they were kind of somewhere in between. They were lukewarm. And these people here in Laodicea had become just like the water that they were famous for. And Jesus says that in the same way that if you drank this lukewarm water, you'd spit it out, that is what Jesus is going to do to the church in Laodicea. Now, why would they be like that? Why would they be kind of not hot for Jesus and not cold against him? Why would they be somewhere in between? Well, he says this in verses 17 to 18. He says, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. You see, they seem to have everything together in life. The kind of, if they were going to have you know, lifestyles as the rich and famous, if they were going to have the good life, it'd be the people of Laodicea. They've got everything together. They don't have the poverty. They don't have the persecution that these other places have. They, in fact, seem really comfortable and self-sufficient. Nothing to really worry about. But Jesus says that deep down, you are actually very poor and you are very hollow. Friends, I actually think that this seventh letter has a particular message to us here in Australia. We are very rich. We have wealth. We have freedom. We have modern convenience. Until, of course, this coronavirus has hit. And this is a wake-up call to us and the world, isn't it? But it's an important message for us that we need to find satisfaction in Christ and not in the world. 
It is so easy for us who are feeling sad and grieving to say, well, buy some more stuff. We've got our health, we've got our wealth, we've got everything together. And then even successful industries are ground to a halt. And even perfectly healthy people find themselves on ventilators. This is a time for our world to sit up and listen, even as we are like the church in Laodicea. They need to repent and follow Jesus, the people in Laodicea. Verses 19 and 20, he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. A church without Jesus at the heart is no church at all. Imagine how silly it is to to think that a church would gather together, all the people saying, oh, we are a Jesus Christ church, and yet Jesus is not present in the church because what they're teaching and what they're really believing is something that is so far away from the essence of who Jesus is. And so he's out in the car park knocking on the door. Hello, let me in. I'm Jesus. I'm supposed to be in the church of Jesus. You know, Christian, Christ, that's me. Let me in. What a sad indictment on a church that will not have Christ in it. And it's not so much a deliberate thing, it's a subtle thing. A church that has gone off the boil, that is no longer hot for Christ, but has now become lukewarm. Is Jesus saying this because he doesn't like us, because he doesn't like the church, because he doesn't like that church that has distanced themselves subtly from him? No, he says this to them because he loves them. And he shows his love when he disciplines us. We don't like discipline, but we know that it's for our good, just like we read in Hebrews chapter 12. And so he ends, Jesus does, following the formula by comforting them with the hope that real wealth and real power is actually found in him alone. And so he says in verse 21 and 22, Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Every day we're switching in and listening to the Prime Minister and to his, our Premier and their ministers and so on, and they're telling us what we need to hear to survive this crisis. Some of it is positive. Some of it is negative, but all of it is important. And right now, in the midst of all of this, we must listen to the leader of leaders. We must listen to our leader, Jesus. We've heard him speak today to seven specific churches in a specific time at a specific place. And as we've understood what was said to them back then, we now understand what is said to us today. This is a message that is fresh that is for us today by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to you and speaking to me. And we need to listen. Some of these words were positive. Some of them were negative. But all of them were important. Our crisis today is different to that of the first century. But the message to us today from Jesus is just as important. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Let me pray. 
Jesus, we thank you so much that by your Holy Spirit you spoke these words of discipline and comfort and assurance to those churches back in the first century. And we thank you, Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit you have stored them up for us in this Bible that we have in front of us. And that even today you have spoken to us. And Father, we repent of the times when we have become self-sufficient, when we've gone off the boil, when we've lost our first love, when we've lost the heat for Jesus and have become lukewarm. We pray, Father, that you would hear our words of repentance and we thank you, Jesus, that you will accept us. And we thank you for the victory we have in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Jembrew Anglican Church. For more information, head to jembrewanglican.com.